This morning we're going to be in Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. That's in page 181 on the Pew Bibles in front of you, if you're in one of those. Um, Before we dive in, uh, just thinking about uh, the prayer that that we prayed through earlier in Isaiah 55, uh, that God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Uh, If I had to pin down really what what I think the main point of the text today is, uh, it would be that. Uh, that, that we are not as patient as God is. Um, we're also not as merciful um, as God is. And we're definitely not as just as God is. And, and so uh, I want us to see that clearly in the text today um, and to marvel and glory at the truth that God is all of those things perfectly. Uh, when we look around the world and we see various forms of injustice at our best times our hearts cry out to god and call for his perfect justice on the other hand we also want a god who's loving and merciful and gracious especially toward us right in other words We want a God who pours out wrath and swift justice on those who we think deserve it. Think Hitler. And we want a God who's loving and merciful closer to home. Think, insert your name here. So, how does this work? Can both of these characteristics be true of God at the same time? Can he be a God of justice and a God of mercy, love, and grace? We get a glimpse of this in today's passage, Joshua chapter 6. So look with me in your copies of God's Word. Joshua 6, verses 1 through 17. This is the Word of the Lord. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, And the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, 
You shall not shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Verse 12. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them. And the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once, and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early, at the dawn of day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction. Lest, when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to, uh, to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there a woman, uh, the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and, iron, and of iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Our four main points today that I want us to view the text through are these. Uh, number one, God uses strange strategies. Number two, God demands vital obedience. Number three, God is just. And number four, God is merciful and gracious. So jumping into point one, God uses strange strategies. 
Uh, I want us to notice from the very beginning that this battle plan that's laid out for Joshua by God is strange. It's odd. Uh, This isn't how any of us probably would have drawn it up. Uh, Joshua and, and the people have crossed the Jordan River safely, and the main strategy is to make a wedge between the north and the south of Canaan. So far, so good. Not a bad plan. And the first major fortified city that they're going to come to is Jericho. Uh, If they were to just bypass Jericho and not deal with it, uh, they'd certainly have a problem uh, of having enemies both in front of them and behind them. So that they need to, to attack Jericho. Again, so far, so good. But what happens next is bizarre. Uh, Look at verses 2 and 3. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. Verse 3, here we go. You shall march around the city, all the men of, of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Wait, what? March around the city for six days? He then goes on to tell them to march around, have seven priests blow ram's horns, and everyone else is to be completely silent. Makes total logical sense, right? That's that's how you win battles? No, not at all. That would be kind of like a, a basketball coach saying... Uh, All right, team, Uh, here's the game plan I want you to go out and fulfill. I I want you to go out there, get the ball, and then just hold it. Don't pass it. Definitely don't shoot it. Just hold it. Even if you have an open layup, don't take it. And I want you to do this for four quarters. In, In the last second of the game, I want you to throw up the ball, and I'll take care of the rest. I've already won the game for you. Crazy, right? That's the equivalent of what God's telling them to do here in this text, but here it's not just a basketball game. Their lives are on the line in a real way. There's got to be more to this story, right? Yes, there is. As with the crossing of the Jordan... The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is central to what's going on here. If you remember, several weeks ago, we learned that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord symbolized God's presence with his people. The Ark is mentioned ten times here in just a handful of verses. In a real sense, the Ark is meant to take center stage in this text. This is about God's presence, and we're meant to see that. God's presence with his people is what makes the difference. Israel isn't going to contribute to the overthrow of the walls. They're to march, to be quiet, and to observe. Can you imagine how weird this must have seemed on both sides of the wall? On the the Jericho side, they're probably watching the first day and thinking, what in the world are these people doing? And by by the second and third and fourth day, they're probably watching from the walls and taunting them. Are are you guys going to come and fight us or not? Are you just going to keep walking around? Cute formations down there. What's in the box? 
Come on, do something. And on the Israel side, silence, marching, priests playing the horns. But internally, they're probably thinking, is this going to work? This doesn't make much human sense. Shouldn't we be doing something? They're probably, at this point, getting rocks and things thrown at them from the, the wall. But they remain silent. And they march for six days. Nothing happened. Can you imagine? E each night, going and obeying the Lord, marching around these walls, going back and sitting in camp, laying in bed. Man, what's going to happen? Is God going to come through here? I wonder if any of you have had moments like this in your Christian lives. You know God's promise is given to you in his word, but you're not seeing anything happen. You continue to see huge walls in front of you. Walls that, humanly speaking, seem insurmountable. Walls of anxiety. Walls of worry and stress, walls of wondering if God's actually going to come through. But you do have this. You have the knowledge of God's past faithfulness. And you have his presence. Look at this. Verse 2. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. First, look at the verb tense here. I have given. As we saw in chapter 1, this is a done deal. God has promised them the land and now the city of Jericho. Even when the strange strategy doesn't make sense, they're trusting in the rock-solid promise of God. Second, I want us to remember who it is that's saying this to them. It says, the Lord. Presumably, this is the sword-wielding commander we met just a couple of verses ago. So they're trusting in the promise of God, but they're also following him. God doesn't always give strategies that map out the way we think they should. But he always gives us strategies that force us to rely on him. Think about prayer for a minute. Think about prayer. Prayer can seem like the most unproductive, unprofitable use of your time, right? What in the world are you doing? The culture around us looks at prayer and thinks we're nuts and deluded. In the last several years, we've seen the media absolutely mock prayer and say things like, we don't need your thoughts and prayers. We need action. To the world, prayer is as silly as marching around a fortified city six days in a row, silently. It's not doing anything, right? Oh, but it is. It's reliance on the God of the universe. It's saying, if anything's going to happen here, it's going to have to be God doing it. Friend, if you struggle with prayer, if you think it's a waste of your time, 
if you think it's not doing anything, I want to encourage you this morning to think again. Don't forget what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4. Paul says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. God wanted his people in Joshua to display complete reliance on him, even when the strategy seemed strange. God wants the same thing from us this morning. Trust him. Rely on him. In prayer, believe his promises. Be comforted by his presence. So, number one, God uses strange strategies. Point two, God demands vital obedience. While the point is being stressed that it's God who does all the fighting for his people throughout Joshua, their obedience is still vital. I want us to see that. Even though God will be the one who brings the walls down, the people must obey by marching and trusting. God gives them specific instructions here. We see in verses 8 through 15, we see God giving these commands to his people, and what do we see them doing? Obeying. We see them trusting God's word, and we see them obeying his commands. This is what honors God, church. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, it says, has the, Lord, or, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Are we saved by our obedience? No. We are saved by Jesus' obedience in our place. But our response is to obey. And that honors God. He delights in our obedience. Further, our obedience is the fruit of real faith. The reason the Israelites obeyed in marching around the city silently is because they believed God, right? Their actions came out of what it was that they believed about God. Uh, look at what the author of Hebrews says about this. Hebrews 11, verse 30 says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith. So, plain and simple, why did the walls fall? Because of their faith in God. Yet, they obey God's commands, which showed that they actually believed him. So understand this. Many people, and you may be one of them, but many people believe that Christianity is just a bunch of rules that you have to keep to earn God's favor. If you do good enough then, and you do well enough, you might get to go to heaven. That's not the message of the Bible, though. The consistent message of the Bible from cover to cover is this. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. We've all committed cosmic treason, slapping the creator of the universe in the face by our words, by our actions, our thoughts, and our inaction. The Bible calls this sin. We've tried to take God off the throne and place ourselves on. 
But the message from from this point isn't one of self-help, where you have to earn your way back to God. That's not what the Bible teaches. The consistent message of the Bible is that God came to us. He came to this earth as a human, lived a perfect life. He obeyed everywhere that we've disobeyed. Philippians 2.8 tells us that being found in human form, he, speaking of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's the good news. When we let go of our sin in repentance and trust in Jesus, we're credited with Jesus's obedience. We're made right with God. We're justified and redeemed and rescued from our brokenness. God is the one who actively obeyed, and we're the ones who get grace. Our response to this grace is obedience. It's not our obedience that saves us, but obedience is the biblical response that displays that we've actually trusted in God for salvation. That's what we see here in Joshua 6. That's what we see actually get betrayed in Joshua 7 that we'll read through next week. And look at how this sets up. So just like with the Jordan River, there's all of this buildup, right? Imagine that you don't know the whole story or what we've just read in the text. Imagine that you don't know any of that. God commands them to march around the walls and then shout. So you're reading along. And you're wondering, is this going to work out? They march once. They march twice. They march six times. And they wake up in the morning on the seventh day. Today's the day. They march. Joshua gives the command to shout, and the next the text pauses there and gives us several verses of clear commands. Do you think God wants us to understand something there? Yes. Obedience is vitally important. While Joshua probably gave these commands in verses 17 through 19, he probably gave the commands earlier before walking around the wall the seventh time, um, but, but the author builds all of this suspense and places these verses right at the peak of the suspense. So there's all this buildup. Verse 17 And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So do you see how many verses there are committed to their obedience in the text? Most of this chapter, actually. So God uses strange strategies, but he also demands vital obedience. Third, God is just. God is just. Uh, I've mentioned this several times in the sermons leading up to this one, but we're finally here. People typically have huge, huge issues with the book of Joshua. 
God brings his people in to overthrow a land and destroy a people. How's that okay? How can God be a good God and command that that he does in this book? Here in the battle of Jericho, which we see wasn't much of a battle at all, we get our first taste. Verse 17, in the city and all that is within it, it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Verses 20 through 21. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Then verse 24, and they burned the city with fire and everything in it. There's no way to sugarcoat this. This is gruesome. It's hard even to read, right? It's hard to understand. And yet, the Holy Spirit, in his wisdom, put this in the Bible for us to wrestle with. While uh, I'm going to hopefully hit some of the main points here, I can only skim the surface. Uh, if you struggle with, with some of the actions of God in Joshua or in uh, the Old Testament as a whole, uh, I highly, highly recommend uh, a book called Is God a Moral Monster? It's by a guy named pa Paul Copen. Is God a Moral Monster? Um, at the end of the day, I want us to see this. God is patient. We're going to see that he's merciful, too, and that he's just. But he's patient. When we, we read books like Joshua, most of us, myself included, are tempted to see the people in Canaan and in Jericho as just kind of basically good people who happen to live in the wrong place at the wrong time. But that couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, look with me at Genesis 15. Genesis chapter 15 Verses 13 through 16 says this. Genesis 15, 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 15. As for you, you shall, go into your, uh, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see that last verse? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Well, who are the Amorites? Amorites are the people who live in Canaan. They were wicked all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. But God was patient. He would have been completely justified in wiping them out then. But he doesn't. He was patient. And it says their iniquity, which is a biblical word for sin or guilt, it continues to grow. This happens over a period of about 430 years. And by the time we get to Joshua, 
their guilt was complete. In other words, they were at peak evil, and God had been patient with them for a very, very long time. Leviticus 18 tells us that the Canaanites were known for adultery, bestiality, temple sex, incest, child sacrifice, and even more than that. For the sake of of propriety, I'm not going to read it, but we even have extra-biblical accounts of what's known as Anath's Massacre, who was a Canaanite deity. The, The account of this type of thing that's going on in Canaan it's so, so gruesome. It makes your stomach sick just reading some of the things that were going on there. These were bloodthirsty, sexually and morally depraved people. Some of the worst in history, actually. Even then, I want to be clear that God's not just picking on Canaan. No. Throughout the Old Testament, God threatens several nations, including Israel, his own people, when they cross a certain moral threshold. Go read Amos chapters 1 and 2. But but I want us to understand that it's God who's the one who gets to make this just call. He's the only one who sees perfectly and acts with complete justice. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see the Israelites, God's people. They go to battle with the Philistines, but without God telling them to do it. They go to battle without God's approval. What happens? They get beat badly. Why? Because God didn't tell them to go. Without God's clear word to them, Israel would not have been justified in going into Canaan or devoting towns like Jericho to destruction. A couple of other truths I want us to see. As loud and clear as I can say it, this this Joshua 6 and the rest of the book of Joshua, it's not genocide or ethnic cleansing. A lot of people accuse God of, of, of genocide here. I want us to see that God isn't judging these people because they're Canaanites. He's judging them because they're wicked. Case in point, Rahab. She's Canaanite, but she's given mercy. She covenants with God, and she's forgiven, and she's grafted in with his people. On the other hand, we'll see later in Joshua 7 that God judges Achan, and he's not Canaanite. He's an Israelite. This isn't about nationality. It's about the holiness of God. God was concerned with sin, not not ethnicity. Second, there's reason to believe that many people fled Jericho in advance. Remember Joshua 2 and the story of Rahab. She mentioned that, that they had heard the story of God and were afraid long in advance of what's happening here in Joshua 6. People had time to either get out of there because they rightly feared God, or to repent and covenant with God, like Rahab. Also, it's widely believed that Jericho was primarily a military outpost. So, uh, the people who were there and shut up in the town were most likely military aggressors. Last but not least, let's not forget that they had seven days 
of the Israelites marching around the city. They could have changed their, 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 their mind. They could have changed their outcome at any time leading up to the judgment of God on the seventh day. They didn't. We know that from Deuteronomy that if they came out of the gate, they would have been shown mercy. But they didn't. They shut themselves in. What's my point? My point is that no one here got injustice. Our temptation is to read a book like Joshua and to think that we're merciful or more good than God. We're not. God was and is completely just in every single way. He was completely good in his just actions toward the Canaanites. Now, hear this. As helpful as it is to kind of parse out all of those things that are going on there, I'm afraid if we do this too much, we miss the point of the text. The point here isn't to tone down the just wrath of God. We're meant to see in real time what sin deserves. In light of that, when we read Joshua, we shouldn't be thinking, man, those people didn't deserve that. Instead, we should be thinking, man, I deserve that. That's exactly what my sin deserves. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. And each and every one of us have sinned against God and deserve to be devoted to destruction along with the people inside of Jericho. Our modern minds fail to understand the holiness of God. I've used this analogy before, but I want to repeat it again here. I want you to imagine that you saw a guy robbing an old lady, and, and you saw him, another guy jump out and just punch this robber in the face. We don't see much guilt in the guy punching the robber, right? We'd actually probably celebrate it. Now, I want you to imagine you see a guy jump out of a car and go punch. Instead of an old lady getting robbed, he jumps out and he goes and punches a police officer. Now, that guy has a deeper level of guilt because of who it is that he's punched. Take it a step further. Imagine you saw a guy jump out of a car and punch the Queen of England. That guy's sin has just increased, right? Understand this. God is completely holy. Each time we sin, we metaphorically punch the Lord and creator of the, uni the entire universe in the face. Our treason is infinite because of who it is that we've sinned against. We fail to see our sin, and we fail to see God's holiness. God is not a moral monster. He's good, and he's just. And, point four, God is merciful and gracious. God is merciful and gracious. Remember Joshua 2? Amazing chapter in this book. Rahab, the prostitute, a Canaanite through and through. She believes God and makes a covenant with him. And look at what happens here in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. 
Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. Then verses 22 and 23. But the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And then verse 25, this is amazing. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. This is an amazing story of salvation and rescue. Rahab and her family are saved and grafted into God's people. She feared God and she fled to his mercy. God saved her and his promise was fulfilled. Do you know that, that this can be true for you today too? It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Even if you've punched the Queen of England in your sin, you can be forgiven. You, like Rahab, can be shown God's mercy and grace when you turn from sin and trust in Jesus. See, Rahab was a pagan Canaanite who now stands in the circle of God's chosen people. We shouldn't then be surprised by the same God in Ephesians chapter 2 taking those who are far off and bringing them near by the blood of Jesus. God is a God of justice. He always does what's right. He's a God of mercy and grace at the same time. And he most fully displays this truth, not here in the book of Joshua, but on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, came to this earth as a baby. He was born of a virgin and lived a perfect life in every single way. He never sinned against God. He then went to the cross and paid the penalty of death and judgment that each of us deserves. He was buried in the grave, and three days later he rose from the dead victorious. He defeated sin and death once for all for those who repent and believe in him. He took our sin, and we get his perfection put on us. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you've listened to this message and you know that you justly deserve God's judgment, this is the best news that I could possibly tell you. You can be forgiven. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus this very moment. He won't let you down. If you'd like to know more about following Jesus, I'd love to talk to you after the service. Finally, Christians, as you read Joshua 6, remember that this gospel is good news for you too. You and I both deserve the same death that the Canaanites got. None of us deserves God's mercy and grace. But God has given us both of those in Christ. We're meant to be reminded of these truths every time we take the Lord's Supper, right? Our sin is so bad that the Son of God had to come die a bloody death on the cross. But our God is so good that he sent his Son to die a bloody death on the cross. 
He loves you, brothers and sisters. He loves you more than you can even comprehend. So let's remember that together and celebrate that truth right now as we take the Lord's Supper together.